Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You know my feelings. Every day is a gift. It just doesn't have to be a pair of socks. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we just had our 150th episode with Paul Bloom, and the response to it has been very good, although we did get a little blowback for one of our topics. So today, what should we do? Do you want to devote this episode to a more comprehensive deep dive on the hoax? Uh, I've Yeah, I have actually four pages of... Uh, <laughs> of points that I'd like to make that just consist of my Reddit and Twitter responses that I'll read verbatim. Right. Uh, No, but uh, the, I was actually thinking about how whatever 10 minutes we spent talking about that, uh, I don't remember getting so much, but, but then I thought uh, maybe the rationalia thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson, that's it. Um, and it, it sim in both cases, I think, uh, Sometimes people think that we must be against the general idea if we have any problem with the the the, the medium or the the style of message. Uh, I was actually just joking about us doing a comprehensive deep, <laughs> deep dive on the. Well, damn it! I gotta like burn my notes now. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, uh, no, no <laughs> we got a lot of we got some blowback on that, and I would say that. Uh, lower quality criticism of our stuff than we sometimes get, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like we could clarify or you know things that people misunderstood, but that's 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 yeah. going yeah, down a road that uh, <laughs> that yeah. Go to the Reddit. You know, if you care, yeah. go to the Reddit. Look at yeah. the Twitter threads. I got a long conversation with with one of the with Helen Pluck Rose. I, I think that's that's where I want to leave my thoughts about that. And I appreciate everybody, even if you were mad, like you know that you the fact that you took the time to complain the, the, that means the that you care a little that bit. You took the time to totally mischaracterize our <laughs> position while complaining yeah. about the that we were mischaracterizing <laughs> the the hoax. That's thank you for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't I, I don't mind. I mind it in the moment. I don't mind it. <laughs> I agree. I I'm just yeah. playing. All right. Um we did get uh one interesting email about a part of the podcast that honestly I didn't even know if we didn't know if we wanted to do, which was when we were talking about podcasts and why 
the sort of level of discussion on podcasts seems better and more nuanced and you're able to uh, not just pound a particular perspective into the ground, but you actually can... That's my bird clock. But you actually can... I really should <laughs> do something about that. I don't know. It's in my recording studio. It's my bird clock. Anyway, uh, so why why does the level of discussion, and, and, and particularly a, a certain kind of discussion that involves really entertaining objections and being able to have respectful disagreement, why does that seem so much easier on podcasts than in these other forms of media? And... Um, we got an email from Grace Lindsay, who is a host of the Unsupervised Thinking podcast, that I thought was interesting. And she agreed with, with our takes, but she also had another sort of cynical, more cynical explanation, she called it. And I'll just read her email now. She says, basically, podcasts are as a format are kind of difficult to interact with. You can't quote a podcast the same way you can screenshot a paragraph in an article. In one way, that's annoying, but it also means you can't tweet part of a podcast out of context. It's not the best example for our podcast (laughs) (laughs) when there's an actual Twitter account devoted to doing that, but in any case. And you can't skim a podcast the way you can skim an article. It forces you to some extent to commit to it, and so you're less likely to misunderstand it or respond quickly in anger. I also think a lot of people listen while they're out for a walk or doing the dishes. Even if they have an immediate reaction, they can't easily respond immediately, so it forces some cool-down time. For example, this is the first time I'm emailing you, but I've had many thoughts about things that you've said over the years that just didn't seem feel very urgent once I got home. So in some ways, the things that make it hard to get a lot of listener engagement for podcasts are also things that uh, keep them above the uh, uh, why can't I read are also the things that keep them above and out of the social media outrage cycles yeah yeah well thanks Grace for sending like for emailing but I I totally agree I mean there's obviously multiple reasons uh, for for I think why we get this feeling that I really like this idea that you kind of commit to listening to a podcast right you you have you've you're devoting an hour and a half listening to these people and it's not it's it really is you're gonna relate if you pay that much attention you're gonna it's because you relate and you're gonna yeah you're you're going to be charitable because otherwise if you're if you're not in the charitable mood you wouldn't devote an hour and a half to listening to people actually i think you know some of the times that we do get unfair criticism, it's clear that a person was directed to a specific point in our podcast and then just has never listened to us before. And so just responds to that, for which is a lot of articles, right? Most articles are like that. You know, That's you right. don't know the author. And, right. But podcasts and their audiences are different. They know you. They, they've heard us talk for forever, you know, more than yeah. most people. People I know have heard me talk uh, (laughs) in some cases. So, like, you know, they're going to have a more complex and charitable way of understanding you. Yeah. And and I also like that cool down point because it is true. I listen to podcasts in the car. I listen to it while I'm like cleaning the house or doing dishes. There's just no way I'm going to like 
walk over to my computer or sit down on my phone and actually say something. Like most cases of outrage, if you give it a little bit of time, you'll calm down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. yeah. And this is also why I don't email as many podcasts that I listen to as much as I should is for exactly that reason, and which makes me all the more admire our li- well this isn't the listener gratitude segment but it makes me <laughs> really admire the listeners who do email us and interact with us even more all right yeah. let's uh, move on to our main topic for today which is a movie episode it had been a while it's we had a while. We had a... when was our what was our last movie do you even god know? damn it i don't remember it was God, I uh, what Mulholland Drive was one twenty one. I know that. Was it that? We should be. We should have come prepared. We should, <laughs> or just not in, in, ask the question. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't know. We have no idea. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so today we're gonna do uh, Stanley Kubrick's a, a Clockwork Orange. It's a classic. I, I'm pretty sure this has come up on a few lists and has been. Uh, discussed before on the podcast to some degree yeah yeah i we haven't talked a lot about it but by the way mulholland drive was our last movie episode 121 really yeah yeah i'm just god so that's Uh, over a year ago wow we don't do enough movies that's my take (laughs) that's my take home (laughs) um so so we both agreed though that this we we i hadn't seen this movie in a long time and i take it you hadn't either uh, n- not for a long time. That's right. I mean, it's 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 been at least ten years, probably for me. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's interesting. I mean, it's it just has some really interesting philosophical ideas. So, uh, my experience of rewatching it was a little interesting, and I think I got a little worried when I was rewatching it, and I thought, did I do I really like this movie as much as I thought I did? You know, like it's this just classic and I love Kubrick. Um, and I, I was, I was a little, I was a little concerned that maybe I had, my memory had either made it better or I was a different person when I watched it the first time. And I, that changed though by the end. And especially after reading, um, some, some good articles analyzing it, I think I'm back to liking it. But it's a more mature kind of liking. Yeah. Like it's a <laughs> yeah, I think there's a couple reasons why I had that same worry going into it and as I was watching it especially. Are these ideas kind of sophomoric? Are these ideas the kind right. of ideas exactly. that you would think you know, are, are deep when you're in college or after college, but then you, know, you take a couple of philosophy classes you or you become a philosophy professor i guess and some of the dichotomies that are being painted seem like caricatures or are overly simplistic there's definitely some elements of that but i i actually think that some of that isn't the fault of the movie it's the fault of like college sophomores who <laughs> interpret the movie a certain way and and in fact a lot of people who interpret the movie a certain way and i and i you know one of the things i'm excited to talk about is i is this idea that i think that the movie is portrayed in a way that it's it's definitely not this simplistic defense of free will against i definitely don't think it's that 
And I thought it was before coming into it. Exactly. I, I, I had that, that same thought that this is, you know, there, there is this sort of critical period um, in, it, for, at least for me in early college, where you're exposed to a whole bunch of new ideas and everything's like, you know, wow, that's deep. Like, you know, what if, like, what if this world is just an illusion? Like, how, you know, how do I know that anything really exists? Like that kind of, of, yeah. <laughs> of realization or like, what if we don't have free will? Which, not to knock on it, I think everybody, you have to go through that. But my thought was, is this trite? Was this trite? And then I, so, so I agree, I agree with you though, that um, I think, and I, especially given like what I think I know about Stanley Kubrick, that, that that level of understanding the point of the movie is a very, very surface level. Yeah. Like that there's, there's more going on. Um, so, so should we go through it? Should we go through yeah, the movie? Yeah, you want to give like the the, ba- the like the gist of it? I mean, I, I assume people have watched it. I mean, it, it's but. a horrific young violent killer and rapist rapes and kills people in the first <laughs> third of the movie, goes to prison and then is given this conditioning technique. Obviously, if you haven't seen the movie, you got to see it before this discussion. It's given this conditioning technique that makes him feel sick whenever he engages in acts of violence. But also, if he hears Beethoven, that's by accident. And then in the third part of the movie, he's released and um, sort of goes out in the world with that conditioning. And yeah, I mean, like that's the basic plot of the movie, but I think we should go through it more carefully and and a lot of the, the thematic stuff will come out. Um, yeah, I uh, just want to say only because it's top of mind to me, and I don't want to forget to say it, uh, which is one general thing. Malcolm McDowell is this movie. This oh like, Malcolm God. McDowell is amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. Yeah, and well, like I'll talk more about why, but but without Malcolm McDowell, this movie would be very different and probably shitty it's one of the greatest performances i've ever seen and i think it's in some ways underrated not that people don't think highly of it but people don't talk about it as one of the great performances and i think you're right like it it like our last movie mulholland drive like the movie stands or falls on the the performance of the the central character and they both and 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 malcolm mcdowell knocks it out of the park like completely yeah, you can imagine a different actor playing it in a very very different way and it would be a completely different movie one that would be a lot dumber he captures the tone of it perfectly like he captures the both stylistic and thematic tone of it the more sophisticated thematic tone of it absolutely perfectly and uh, and I, I also read that Kubrick just knew that this was his role right from right. the beginning. There was nobody else he was yeah. going to even consider having besides him. Right. Okay. So the first part is where you meet Alex, who's the main character, who it's not totally clear how old he is in the movie, but he's definitely not 15, which he is in the book, which sort of right. makes it a little different. He probably looks like, what would you say he looks like? I would say he looks like he's 19. Yeah, 19, 20, 18, somewhere yeah. in there. Late teens, very early 20s. Um, right. So it starts out in uh, the this milk bar. I forget what it's called. Corova. Corova milk bar, yeah. with yeah. So it's Alex, and he's like a gang leader of these droogs, he calls them. There's this great slang throughout that's 
partially yeah. invented by Anthony Burroughs. Wait, Anthony Burgess. Burgess. Anthony Burgess, <laughs> who wrote the novel that Kubrick stuck pretty close to, actually. Uh, and it's this is one of the few non-location, right. which is weird for Kubrick that he did so much on location. He's not usually like that, but this is one of them, and it's awesome, the milk bar. Uh, it's incredible. It, I mean, <laughs> so I, it, we, it's, it's sort of um, a future dystopia i mean like i don't think that it's that it the the theme of the movie is a dystopia i don't think it's a dystopia film but it is intended to be some nebulous time in the future and so these these droogs these gang members are wearing very weird outfits um and the bar is like you know the design is just but it also (laughs) has like some 60 late 60s elements to it too so it's very much like a future version of the present moment, <laughs> exactly you know and yeah the footstools there are these women who are naked like those are like the the coffee table footstools that right out- it's like women in a crab position yeah and yeah. Uh, the the thing that gives them their milk which is the ultimate like helps their ultra violence it's some sort of drugged up probably amphetamine laced alcohol or something i don't know um comes out of a woman's breast uh yeah you know like it's like a tap little tap yeah yeah like at this point i should we should say like this is (laughs) there is this was an x-rated film when it was released yeah i forgot that you you're introduced to him you you see that he's he's narrating he does a voiceover and um and then you have this series of scenes which are kind of brutal like they're really really hard to watch like that first sort of it's exhilarating that first scene in the milk bar just the virtuosity of it but then you know you really get thrown into a bunch of scenes of just choreographed violence choreographed violence but like yeah, not I, I with the, except for maybe the the gang fight. It's it's not fun choreographed violence. No, not at all. In fact, you know, I was watching some some people and reading uh, about the film, and some people were like, "Oh, you know, nowadays everybody's completely desensitized to violence. It's like much more a part of our whatever, like our existence." And I was like, "But not that." Yeah. Like I, you know, I could see a million action movies and horror movies, and still have that sense. Uh, and I've seen this movie before, like at least twice, if not more. And I still yeah. find it hard to watch. Oh, yeah, no, this is a just, different level of that. This yeah, isn't like yeah. John Wick, or uh, <laughs> no. you know, this isn't. Uh, anyway, so 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 first they go and they and and it's and, and the the people they pick are especially kind of heartbreaking too it's like a homeless guy who's just singing minding his own business singing drunk homeless guy singing his irish tunes and they just kick the shit out of him in an alley and then they go where another rival gang led by billy boy is they're about to gang rape do the old in out in out uh to a woman and not out of any chivalrous attempt to save the woman, but they, <laughs> they, uh, they, they just get into a fight with them pretty much for the hell of it, just to get into a fight. It sounds, it seems like the, yeah. the woman gets off, gets away, but that's, that's 
kind of reverse collateral damage that's collateral reward or whatever. <laughs> right they didn't want that and um and that is just fun to watch like because it's to the thieving magpies by rossini which is kind of an upbeat music and right. uh, upbeat classical music and and uh it really is choreographed and and i think one of the reasons it is fun to watch is because these are at least for me these are both you know bad guy idiots fighting each other you know they're gangs yeah right and so as they're fighting each other it's you know they're doing all kinds of moves they're jumping in the air they're doing drop kicks and it's all sort of set to that yeah that rossini um and that's that's about as fun as the violence gets yeah and then they go on this car ride which is a fucked up freaky car ride where they're driving it took me a a little bit to get it because everyone's like going off the road and then you realize oh they're driving on the right but they're in England. I know. At first, I was like, "Why is everyone having to swerve?" Uh, they're just <laughs> right. Yeah. This this kind of seems like it's their fault. No, it, uh, but uh, but it's a really kind of the way it's shot. This was the first time I realized we're really getting this whole movie from Alex's perspective. I should have realized it before because. Um, he's narrating it but like everything is just kind of askew in a way that it would be from his kind of point of view and so yeah and Kubrick I was reading you know Kubrick like shot he shot in these very wide lenses that kind of distort the image on on the edges and that's that's Alex's view of the world um which is a really, it's really cool. That car scene also is like, you know, it uses that old film technique of of clearly running a projector in the yeah. back. <laughs> I know, which is and again, that, I don't associate me, with Kubrick to like. No, it threw me off a little it's bit. It's like a I mean, Hitchcock kind in, of thing. More. This was in seventy two, right? Yeah. So, uh, so that definitely seems anachronistic, especially given that two thousand one, two thousand one came out the year before, where. Like those, those special effects were all practical effects, and they stand the test of time. Like those are it, those are incredible, incredible. I just saw it like on the big screen, and it was oh, it was just amazing. like amazing. It was like Christopher yeah. Nolan's my favorite thing he's done. He restored the like seventy millimeter, put it out over the. Summer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing about that. So then you have the they get to, they do the uh, what do they call it the old. Call it the old surprise visit. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the most notorious scene in the movie, which is the um, the rape of the woman uh, in, in her house with her husband, um, the Alexanders. Well, I don't know if she, she took his last name, but, um, <laughs> but you have this husband and wife, an old husband, uh, not very young wife, but... Um, and they go in, they, they force their way in, and then they, and, and he ties the guy up, ties Mr. Alexander up, and they rape Mrs. Alexander while he sings Singing in the Rain. Right, right. Which was Mal- apparently Malcolm McDowell's uh, choice, like his improv. Um, and it is. Although less choreographed, it is dance-like. Yeah. So as he's singing, you know, on the beats of the song, he's either, you know, like kicking 
kicking Mr. Alexander while he's down or slapping or her. I mean, it's it's really her. hard to people say it's titillating and it's like he's trying to get the male audience like uh, like excited and and actually kind of root for Alex in this scene like I don't totally get that like I was kind of no I mean like the let there be yeah like, like let, let it be absolutely clear I think this is like a scene of as pure evil as you can get given their delight while they're doing it and of course it's sexual you know and they right. they make it and and you know the way that he cuts her clothes to expose her breasts first like it's I, I suppose that could be titillating to somebody who's into rape. Um, but it's, if anything, it causes this weird, weird conflict where you're like, well, normally when I see those images, I am, you know, uh, like I might be aroused at the, at the sight of a, of a naked woman, if that's what you're into. But this is jarring. <laughs> it's jarring. It is right? a conflict. Like it is because also at, at every level, right? It's also sort of just that same kind of virtuosic filmmaking that goes into pretty much every shot in the whole movie is is uh and the set is the set is, you know, their house is just kind of a masterpiece of production design. <laughs> Yeah. It's like it has all this kind of modern art, which is a very erotic, sexual kind of, you know, uh, I, I like it's it's sterile erotic, but it's kind you know it's like breasts and uh, yeah the the whole movie is full full of this sort of like the the set decorations are all like you get this sense that in this culture is like. You know, it's a bunch of pervs who collect art. <laughs> I think that art was the vagina house, right? It was just all vaginas in the house. Like, like the couch Mid- looked like a vagina. There was like s- vagina sculptures. There were, um, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think way, you're seeing one- this from Alex. Like, I don't think we're supposed to think necessarily that's literally his their how their house looks as much as. Oh yeah, I never thought about that. I never thought about that because it does throw you off because you're you're always seeing a third person view, view yeah. during, right? but but it is supposed to be from from his perspective. You know, speaking of two thousand one, the the four guys move. One of them has a stick. I don't remember if it's I if it's Alex. Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, yeah, and they, t- I. Knowing Kubrick, it must have been on purpose, but they look exactly like the apes in or the proto humans in two thousand one huh. when they pick up the bone and start and start attacking the other the other tribe and and I couldn't help but think that there is there is something that links those two movies together. Um, I, I agree. So so you have this scene. I mean, I don't know. Like, it, uh, there are a couple things that I noted this time more than I had noted the last time, or at least more than I remember noting. When he is about to actually rape her, you know, up till now he's been cutting off the various parts of her clothes and singing. He, uh, and and the husband, who's old and kind of crippled, is on, is is wrapped up in some sort of tape and being held down by two other guys and um and right they put a ball in their mouth and tape it yeah they put a ball is, in, yeah so right before he's about to rape her he looks at the husband mr alexander alex 
but but the way it's shot it's like he's looking right into the camera and he says vidi well my brother vidi well and uh, it's like which means see in their slang it means yeah right it means uh watch this see this um see it well and it really is like he's saying that to us more than he i mean it's clear in the 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 scene that he's saying it to the husband but the way it's shot it's like he's he's staring right at you as you're watching right which i did not notice that really but it makes sense given that the opening shot is a breaking of the fourth wall shot where he's just directly looking into the camera with a voiceover I, i think that's your first clear signal that this is also implicating the audience in a serious way the people who are watching the movie uh, the fact that he's looking at us kind of leering and, and telling us to watch this, like, I don't know, it had a little, it has a little bit of, you know, you like this, even though you don't want to admit it. You know that he thinks you secretly like it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like whatever, whatever we're feeling, he's, he's very much assuming like, well, you know, you want to watch this. So I, what I, I'm not suggesting that he knows he's talking to an audience. I'm suggesting more that this is a Kubrick touch. Yeah. No, no, no yeah. But maybe no, not. I, Cause he's narrating it to I an mean, audience, right? Like, so he, he knows he's narrating to an audience. So actually I'm not going to change my mind about that. You're know- your humble narrator. Yeah. Your humble narrator. Yeah, it's unclear. It's unclear whether he's going back and forth um, from narrating to us. Yeah. 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 Um, But whatever it is, I think Kubrick is definitely implicating the audience. So we move on from that scene. They go back to the milk bar. Like you get, it's a weird, like it's it's hard to figure out like what the society looks like because you don't get very many other people in the movie right but here there are these what he calls sophisticos that are look like these people that went to an opera or something they come by this milk bar sort of slumming it maybe right and uh this woman just starts singing the beethoven's ninth the choral and he just is enthralled while dim less enthralled and that that gets a little uh, there's a little dissension within the the droogs at that point. Right, right. His gang of his gang of four, um, and the, his love of Beethoven. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. Right, he's his his love of music in general. You know what Kubrick is trying to say about well, like what he's what he's attempting to communicate to us about Alex. Yeah, that he is such a lover of Beethoven. I don't know if that's supposed to humanize him a bit. I don't know if it's, you know, it's a very quirky thing for a psychopath who rapes and murders all night yeah. to be to be well, so obsessed. Well, I mean, but one of the things is, for whatever reason, Beethoven gives him the, these violent fantasies. And so whenever, yeah. uh, I, I was surprised, I had sort of assumed that like the scenes of violence took place to Beethoven, but they don't. They take place. They're like usually Rossini, there's more Rossini in this. Yeah in this movie yeah it the yeah. scenes of violence don't take place to beethoven it's his imagination like his when he just starts going through like we're gonna in the next scene actually he goes back home listens to beethoven and then just this montage of of just and 
the yeah. crazy sex and violence just goes in and that's like there's something about beethoven that inspires that in him yeah by the way one of the coolest audio systems like that with little mini cassette tapes and the little just lit up like yeah it's so so fucking aesthetically pleasing the production design is like a drop the mic kind of like this is you can't top this there's no yeah, way you can it, top this as is the sound and like the, the sound. use, yeah, the, yeah the, the use of music is just you know. But the cr- house, cr- like cr- his cr- his home, is incredible. Like it's just like every part of it, and and you know his room, every detail, right? And and he lives in a shitty neighborhood. This is yeah. supposed to be like a working class person, and it's just like yeah. yeah. But he so <laughs> he 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 kind of just plays sick. So he's clearly still going to school. He plays sick. The mother, the parents are just these beleaguered, weak parents who clearly don't run the house. Uh, Alex runs the house. And there's this very cool scene, just a fucked up scene, where he gets up, he's in his like tidy whitey, I don't know if they're white, but they're they're like those kinds of underwear. Yeah. And he's please. just wan- just wandering around his house just and he walks by a room and it's like you see you get a <laughs> yeah. glimpse of like a, a guy there you think but you're not sure and then right as you're having that thought Alex has that thought and then just yeah. kind of goes back to the room it's so perfectly shot and and there's this guy named Deltoid who's the, the, we find out the the headmaster of the school that he goes to and the school is supposed to be some sort of reform school right. and this performance by an actor named Aubrey Morris I like it's so weird it's so grotesque it's 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 crazy Grotesque is the right word, and I find that that's actually his use of actors who are being grotesque in this in this movie. Like, it, it, so it runs throughout. I find the Mister Alexander to be oddly grotesque. Um, I find yeah. the the the, the the Reverend in prison is oddly grotesque. Yeah, um, it's like this. The people in the disdain. hospital, the people like throughout. Yeah, these are just. Uh, uh, and maybe it is Alex's perspective on normal humanity um, that you, there are all these. The thing that popped into my head was how much the Coen brothers have been influenced by the aesthetic for, for this movie. Like, you know, in a movie like Raising Arizona or Barton Fink, they're like the, the real close up. He uses close ups and some oh, sort yeah. of angle to just highlight the grotesqueness of the character. And and the performances uh, reflect it too. Like this guy Deltoid is like, hmm, yes, yes, oh. <laughs> yeah. It's just so, <laughs> so creepy. And, it, and when he grabs him in the nuts, yeah. like in his in his uh. briefs, it's like, what the hell kind of person is this? Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> you don't know who's the villain. I, and I think um, that's and- actually something that we should talk about later when we get through this. But like, there's not many sympathetic characters in this movie at all. And like you said, you often don't know who's the villain. No, and and throughout, as 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 Malcolm McDowell as Alex is interacting with people, not during his violent moments when he's interacting with just normal other humans um, uh, during his everyday life, he is charming um not not mean at all I, like what came to mind to me was uh eddie haskell ish from leave it to beaver yeah 
Exactly. You know, you you just know he's up to no good, but he's just polite on the surface and he's all smiles and he's a, he was a good looking man. And, and you can, you know, Kubrick very much likes his look when you said the use of the use of close-ups is grotesque with nearly everybody else, but it's almost angelic for, for Malcolm McDowell. Absolutely. And he, he kind of knows what they want to hear. Like he's, Mm -hmm. he's very like. He he has a good understanding, uh, psychological understanding of what people want from him, and he gives it to them when he's in when it's in his interest. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's go through this a little quickly. Yeah. Then, so he then goes to a record store. I nice little in joke. Two thousand one, yeah. Space Odyssey soundtrack is at the record store. There's these two girls who apparently are ten in the novel, but uh, here they just look like. 19. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, and they go home, have a quick threesome. Uh, they're sucking these popsicles. And, uh, uh, yeah. Quick because he speeds it up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> quick threesome. Right. It's not quick if you actually <laughs> slowed it down yeah. because it seems like there's like three or four goes. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. It's very they put on fun. their clothes and take it off. Again. And it's to the William Tell oversource. So it's like... Then his droogs come over and they're pissed off because of Alex was, uh, and they're doing, they're like, there's a little mutiny. And so he, and this is one of the scenes I remember really well when they're walking on the docks and like, this is one of the image, this movie leaves a lot of images that are ingrained on you. But for this was one of them where he just immediately kind of is walking on the docks with them and you don't have it. And then all of a sudden he just, you can see in his head and he's also describing it. Like no fuck this, and yeah, he, he needs just, he needs to just yeah. like exert his alphaness again. Exactly, and, reexert yeah. his uh, like unquestioned control over the group because they haven't fully said that he's not the leader anymore. But he's just making sure that even just a hint of it is no fuck that. Yeah, and yeah. um, and then that leads to them going to try to rob this cat lady. And again, that that this woman's house is the same thing. It's all sexual, kind of stylized modern art. There's like a woman sucking a tit in yeah. just like one painting. She has this huge dildo that becomes actually the murder weapon. Uh, I don't know if I would call it a dildo when it's that big. It's a sculpture. It's a phallic sculpture. <laughs> I guess you would call it a phallic sculpture, right? A dildo sort of implies it's, you have a functional definition. That's like a, for a giant. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, but it's very funny, the dildo, also the way it rocks. Like it kind of jerk, yeah. jerkily yeah. rocks. It, like it has some filling inside of it that, that when you rock it to one side, all the weight goes to the other side and shifts it back. <laughs> So it's like it's like weeble wobbling, yeah. Um, and it's very like yeah, it's a very kind of comic scene for actually most of it, right? Like, yeah. I mean, she's she stands up to him. She um, yeah, she doesn't let them in, so he yeah. has to right. She Sneak she in. she doesn't fall for the same ploy that that the Alexanders fell for, um, because she read it in the paper. So she's savvy. She knows she knows that she's in danger. She calls the police. Uh, he gets in anyway. But she also just doesn't refuses to be intimidated like at any point in that encounter um she refuses to be intimidated by him she's like scolding him and yelling at him and there's this sort of comic scene of um her holding the the not the dildo the sculpture the (laughs) sculpture and him sort of you know 
uh, trying to dodge it. And but then he ends up killing her with it. Right. Probably because she stood up to him. Like, you know, like had she been more docile, she would have probably just gotten raped. Yeah. Um, but yeah, were you going to say it's not it's not clear that he wanted to murder her? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. Like, I think probably he did just to get her off because she kept fighting and resisting and he's not used to that. But um, and the plan was to break in to steal her valuables. Right. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that they were breaking in to rape her necessarily, although that might have happened anyway. And then his droogs fellows are sick of being, you know, dominated by him and they set him up and let the police catch him. Right. And that takes us to part two. All right, let's take a break and thank our sponsor. And this is a sponsor, Dave, that even the people on Reddit that always find something to complain about when we have a sponsor, I don't think they can bitch about this one. It is givewell.org. Dave, you know how when you teach Peter Singer famine, affluence, and morality, all the students are looking for reasons to object to why they should give to charity? And one of the biggest objections is, well, the charities are ineffective. They're corrupt. And I think the implication there is that they want to give to good charities, but they have no way of trusting that the charities they give to are actually going to do the most good. And this is what GiveWell does. They help you maximize the good you can accomplish for each dollar you can give. They give in-depth, detailed research to identify evidence-backed, cost-effective programs that help the poorest people in the world. Its website, givewell.org, provides a very short list of top charities that have met GiveWell's exacting standards. GiveWell is unique because it focuses on how much good a charity accomplishes. For example, how many lives does it save? Or how much does someone's income increase with each dollar donated? It has a list of top charities that do things like fund programs to prevent child deaths from malaria or provide direct cash transfers to very poor households in East Africa. Just really good causes that they've put thousands of hours of research into figuring out. And all that research is actually available for you if you want to take a deep dive. And look... It's not like you can't donate to your charity of choice, right? You have an aunt with breast cancer or you love your uh, American Eskimo puppy. You can donate to whatever you want. But if you have that money and you're trying to decide maybe an additional place to donate to or maybe you actually think you want to make the most, get the most bang for your charity buck, give GiveWell a shot. It is probably the easiest charity website that I've ever used. It, I literally was able to sign up in about 60 seconds maybe um so all of the its information all of the scientific evidence for the programs all of the reviews and it publishes its models so if you're a nerd and you like that sort of thing you could take a a deep dive into the details if you're interested but you don't have to all you have to do is spend a few minutes you can go to give wells top charities they're right there on the list or you can even ask give well to use the money in whatever way they see fit which is what i did because i'm lazy so Thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. I hope you guys, um, especially during the holiday season, find it in your heart to help those who might be less fortunate than you. And if you do, consider using GiveWell.org. And sorry, intro to ethics students, but you're going to have to come up with another objection to Peter Singer.
to understand it. Be the beat bandit who bring heat for the mic. A handy. Whoever go after burn their hands and lips. A lot of rappers ran and abandoned their whips. It's just another day in the dunya. Don't leave your girl around, V, he might sooner. Up under the window, serenade her like a crooner. Stay ahead of the game and cut her off sooner or later. Use her to gather data. Scoop it in the butter, soft boom, roof navigator. Or the land, or the lands, or the bends. 116 by the hour from the Africans. But they won't let you push them. One tried to get fly, I almost had to mush them. If I wanted to rob them, I would have wore a mask. Hit them with the phone, took the dough and tow ass. Want not, waste not, front not. They didn't see them dipping to the 50 cent punch spot. We walked the town with space boots, space suits. Fucked up cut, but she still says face cute. Told the streets what you staring at. The sewer cap opened up and said, why you wearing that? He said, oh, you want to snap? This face, the way you be in everybody's business is a disgrace. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this point in the show is, as you may have guessed, the time of the show where we like to thank all of our listeners for the support they've given. Um, we really appreciate it, even when we get mad. Um, that that means I still think it means that you care. We appreciate all the emails and uh, messages and tweets. Um, and uh, as always, we we read everything. We can't respond to everything, but. Um, we, we really do appreciate it. If you want to get a hold of us, you can um, tweet to us at VeryBadWizards, at Tamler, or at Pease. You can email us, VeryBadWizards, at gmail.com. And if you want to engage in discussion with other listeners, a good place to do that is either on our Facebook, um, facebook.com slash VeryBadWizards, or on our subreddit. I'd say our subreddit. It's run by other people, but it's about our show. Uh, reddit.com slash r slash VeryBadWizards really really good discussions that we also chime into every once in a while um and you can follow us on instagram again very bad wizards is the username if you care enough and would like to support us in in more tangible ways we always really appreciate that all the ways that you can support us are on our website verybadwizards.com slash support um you can Donate to us via PayPal, a one-time donation or a recurring one through PayPal. Uh, you can shop at Amazon just by clicking on our link and shopping as you would normally. Um, we really appreciate that. No cost to you, a little benefit to us. It adds up. And uh, finally, you can become a Patreon uh, supporter. Go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards and uh, be part of that community. And there's also a discussion there. That's another way that you can reach us if you're a Patreon supporter. We really appreciate any amount that you give. Um, we we love what we do and we put a lot of time and effort into it, but it, it really does keep us going. Um, and we have a yeah. couple bon- uh, definitely in final talks to do a sequel with Natalia and Jesse on Twin Peaks focused on a few questions. You talked about maybe doing a Westworld... Yeah, with Paul Bloom, actually. Paul Bloom. Um, um, it, it might require a rewatch, but uh, but it would be fun. We'll find something to do with Paul Bloom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, we have we, we want to do, we said we were going to do, and we will do a kind of bonus sorry to bother you. Uh, That's right. little segment. Um, yeah, we love our Patreon supporters. We really, really appreciate it. And... Anything else? Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes so that these usurpers that come in and (laughs) outrank us because of some 
trick that they do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> our numbers are good, but they're not reflected in that iTunes ranking. So, yeah. <laughs> one last thing: uh, my audio book, read by oh. me, narrated by me, for Why Honor Matters, is coming out November fourteenth. So that's just over a week after this gets released. So please go buy that. Uh, I'm going to release a director's commentary um, <laughs> track where it's just me talking over you. <laughs> Can you add uh, an, a commentary track over your audio? Over an I audio like book, it. yeah. No, I think that a lot of people would uh, It'll just be a video. That. It'll be like a YouTube video of me making gestures. <laughs> Holding up signs, making fun. <laughs> making like wanking gestures. <laughs> Uh, but if I do that, it will only be for our Patreon. So <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Back to Clockwork Orange. Your humble podcasters are back, and your humble narrator is going to prison. And it is a... It's it's very funny. Like, when he first goes into the prison, he looks like a little kid in a, in a suit. Like, he has his little tie, and he looks like a kid that's been dressed up yeah. Uh, and he goes into this to the and and there you meet this warden who's played by the actor M- Michael Bates. This was the first thing that like I remembered the first part of the movie pretty well with a few details. This was the first part that surprised me to the degree that it was going for kind of a comic effect. Like this was like a Monty Python skit. Absolutely. I mean, the prison throughout and the, the comedic sort of uh, militaristic walks. You know. Are you or have you ever been a homosexual? <laughs> As my friend pointed out, uh, he he apparently is looking straight at his cock when he asks that. Yeah, <laughs> It's a great performance, a great comic performance. Friend, It really is like he's like John Cleese. Like he goes in Monty exactly. Python. He goes through all the different... I, maybe John Cleese based like some of his stuff on, <laughs> on him. I don't know, but like he goes through all of his stuff and records it and it's all very painstaking and all very Germanic in some ways. Uh, painstaking is right. And this is where where I first thought to myself... Um, Kubrick is not afraid to not waste our time, but to not, not satisfy the laziness of the viewer by skipping through all of that stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, even when, you know, there's a scene later on when they release him and he's like, you know, signature here. Yeah. And here, and, and I was like, well, Kubrick just actually wasted, yeah. you know, five minutes of my time watch showing somebody sign a contract. No, absolutely, and it's and it's it's, it's interesting that he devotes this much attention to this element of it because he had to cut some stuff out to keep it within a reasonable running time. Right. So it's 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 kind of a great scene. You get a good you get Alex kind of sizing it up. At first, he just doesn't totally know what to make of this guy, and then he figures it out and what he has to do to keep this guy from yelling at him. And it's it's really funny. I mean, like it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So then you get this uh, it, it this prison in a lot of ways is like a school. Nobody looks that menacing, but 
to the extent that they do, it's like menacing, like in a school, like bullies. So there's this priest that comes and gives them a or a chaplain, a prison chaplain that comes yeah. and gives them a, a speech. And meanwhile, like the kind of there's like naughty kids, even though they're adults, but they're making <laughs> lewd faces yeah. at, at Alex and the priest, and um, it really yeah, does... Yeah, while he's delivering a hellfire and brimstone yeah. uh, like sermon. And then you get the sense that Alex is settling in. He's been there for a couple years. The priest loves him. He works in the library. He's playing the perfect choir boy at this point. Yeah. By the way, he. But yeah. I, I remembered my thought. He gets 14 years, which sort of surprised me. It must have been like a charge of manslaughter or something, because... For 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 murder, fourteen years doesn't seem like a whole lot unless the Brits have a very different puni- like well, the, penal system. I mean, we'll talk about this when we get to the philosophy uh, behind this. But this was in the uh, the book is written in the early sixties. the The movie comes out in early seventies before the retributivist revival and the harsh sentences like i wouldn't surprise me if that really was yeah but i don't know but you could also maybe it was pled down to manslaughter in some ways she was like not self-defense exactly because it's not self-defense when you crash somebody's head in with a giant dildo (laughs) not dildo (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, one of the funny things in the in the scene with the, the he, he's in the library and he's he's now being the perfect choir boy for the for the priest. Right. He's talking about how much he loves reading the Bible. And you're like, oh, that's that's like a real, real weird thing. <laughs> and he fantasizes about people being crucified. Well, the, well, yeah. So hilariously, this is one of the funniest shots in the movie is that he's, you know, he's saying how much he loves reading the Bible. They cut to a scene of Jesus bearing the cross on his way to being crucified. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, is, is he actually touched by this? And then the camera pans over to the, the Roman uh guard whip the centurion soldier whipping him and it's it's alex like he's fan the reason he loves the bible is he's just taking delight in being the he says the perpetrator i imagine myself in the height of roman fashion (laughs) 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 and then he talks to the priest he's clearly like the favorite of the priest he's got him completely hoodwinked and says he's heard about this new technique that can allow a man to be released very soon uh, within a few weeks, even, and the priest knows what he's talking about, and and says to him, "But here's the problem with that. The question is whether it really makes a man good. When a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. Right. And so this is the goodness fir- comes from within. Yes, good. Yeah. And and then Alex plays kind of innocent, like he just doesn't. He thinks he can beat." whatever this thing is, and just right. says, I don't understand the whys and wherefores, sir. I just want to be good. This is where, <laughs> like, this performance also kind of takes it up to another level. Yeah. Um, long story short, there's a bunch of scenes here, but he gets to be their pilot case. Is he the first? At first, I No, th- they say, he yeah. says that they're, they're, it's a still at the experimental stages, yeah. and so we don't quite know whether that, you know what kind of experimentation they've done on other people but um he is certainly the first full case that they trot out right the minister yeah. of of the interior selects him and they're going to make him their first example of a successful treatment yeah so they take him to the hospital from the prison the warden 
clearly doesn't improve. And here's where you get this dichotomy between retributivism and what is allegedly a a rehabilitation approach to punishment. And the warden is on the side of, he says, I don't approve of this eye for an eye, this new rule with reform and cure. He says it's grossly unjust as he's giving Alex over to the the person. So you have the priest who's worried about it, that this technique is going to take away Alex's free will, and you have the warden who is worried that it's unjust, that it's not giving the prisoner the punishment that he deserves. Um, And then you get the famous thing where it's really... It's hard to watch it and take it seriously anymore just because of how much it's been parodied and how much... Uh, right. But the conditioning process of Alex with his eyelids peered open and... I, it, it's still... You know, the scene of the still shot, you know, seared in my head of him with his eye, eyelids pried open, but still watching them do that, I mean, they did that. Yeah. Like, there is no, I know. There's nothing fancy. They apparently anesthetized his eyes... But it was still really painful. And I was reading that as they're applying eye drops, that was a real doctor because they didn't anticipate that that's what they were going to have to do. But they just made that part of the scene. That's Um, And he ended up getting injured. And this is also the first time that Alex doesn't seem like he totally knows how to read the situation or what's going on. Like, I think he thinks as he goes in there, this movie has a lot of power struggles and Alex is usually in the dominant position in the power struggle, but for the first and, and and really was for the whole time in prison. Yeah, but for the first time, like he's out of his element, and they seem like they're the ones who are kind of smug, and he's not. You know, he his he's all about smugness, but for the first time, he is a little unsure what's going on. Like he's putting on a front. But he doesn't know how to read the situation well. Well, yeah. And in fact, you know, as somebody watching the movie for the first time, um, you don't know what's about to happen. So he has no idea what this treatment entails. Yeah. And first time viewer has no idea what the treatment entails. And you're not even quite sure when they're doing it. They're, they inject him with something, this Ludovico technique, as it's called, yeah. uh, which is a classical conditioning where they essentially give him a solution that makes him nauseated and makes him panic, I guess. Nausea, yeah. Nausea being like the, the, the key element there. And they pair it with images of violence over the course of a few days so that the eventual goal of him feeling sick when he whenever he has violent thoughts which just the intro psych professor in me wants to say like that's wouldn't really <laughs> wouldn't really work with nausea like we like t- aversion therapy like that if if you get nausea you're never going to pair it to images you're going to pair it to whatever you you ate right before like that's <laughs> that's right. like a well-known finding oh god you're a disgust <laughs> researcher and you have to <laughs> Yes. Uh, well, yeah. suspension of disbelief for this yes. part. A couple of things about these scenes, in addition to the like kind of horrific part of it, they always talk to him like he's a little kid in a hospital. Like he's sort of asking, like like a kid would ask about a shot, and they're talking. They even call him my boy a lot of the time, and it's very much like he's become a kid. They're infantilizing him or. 
in a way that you do that to a kid in the yeah. hospital, like you're trying to cure them. They don't know what's good for them. And so you tell them. And that's, I think, part of that's deliberate. It comes across really clearly. And it is one of the things that people have objected very strongly to rehabilitation approaches to crime, which is that they treat human being adults like they're little kids and approach punishing them like you would approach punishing a little kid or curing a little kid. Hmm. I had thought I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is interesting that over over the course of the film up until now he gets increasingly childlike. Yes. Right? He is a menace. He, the opening shot is him just being menacing. And, you know, move over to when the, he's first talking to the schoolmaster and and to some extent his parents. And by by the time he's in the hospital, he play and he McDowell plays this little kid so well. So well. It's just it, he yeah. is. It's delightful. You you don't even dislike you, you could read it. Another, you know, a lesser actor would would come off as sarcastic and insincere. Yeah. And he is. It's not even clear to me that he's being insincere. Like I feel like he's almost falling into that role, um, be, me, you know, maybe for survival. But like that, he really is like sort of delighted when they give him food in the hospital, and you know, right? I mean, that's the comp. That's another complicated element that sort of throws a. He is childlike in some ways. He really does think about violence in a childlike way, and like. So so they they do this technique where they make him feel sick. I guess we should say, although everybody knows this, I'm, I assume, I hope, that one, it's, it's a byproduct, uh, kind of collateral damage of the, of the technique that they had Beethoven playing during these scenes of violence. So not only does he feel nausea and panic and sickness when any thought of violence comes into his head or sex, but also when Beethoven plays, and especially yeah. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Exactly. Which was Ironically, his the, the ode to joy. Yes. And they, f- they regret it. Like, there's a shot, there's a scene of the people in the booth, mm-hmm. and they're like, why is he so upset about the Beethoven? And he's like, oh, he loves Beethoven. And they said, oh, well, can't be helped. And then, and then yeah. one of them says, this is the punishment element, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. It's which like, is, well... We weren't going for this, but like now, at least we could say that we've satisfied yeah. some re- retribution. Exactly, that was a very f- exactly like here. This you know, these people want retribution. Here's a <laughs> tiny little taste of that. Yeah, and and he really gets upset. I mean, there is nothing that has upset him no that much. You know, this gets back to the puzzle of why why they make why either Burgess or or Kubrick make this so central to his character. Maybe it's just to give him this one weakness, but there is. Even when he's caught by the cops, like there's, you know, like a true psychopath sort of, he doesn't think in the long term and and only reacts to things that are immediately happening to him. And when this immediately happens to him, it's like the greatest suffering that he has endured so far. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, that's when he begs them, like he never begs people to stop, but he begs them to stop. And the way they talk to him, like, no, no, boy, you really must leave it to us. Like, just, it's so patronizing. Um, Yeah. And then, so finally it's done, and he, he, it's, this is, again, very 
crazy scene where he's being presented to groups of luminaries and (laughs) people involved, but it's a very small kind of audience. And it looks like like a kid's piano recital or a kid's, you know, and that's how it's sort of played out where they show that he, even when people are humiliating him, he won't fight back. And even when a naked woman, beautiful naked woman comes out, he won't uh, try to uh, rape her or attack her. Although he wants to do both of those things. Yeah, he's reaching. He's reaching for her. Yeah. And, and then is just crippled with sickness um, from doing it. And so, the, and this is where, like, you know, well, I, I want to go through the whole movie before we get into this. But this is where the whole they've taken away his free will. It, it really doesn't seem like they have. But let me put a pin yeah. in that, as yeah. as Recline would say. And, and, and just the so the, the woman and the guy who kind of humiliates him. In the in the presentation, they both give these bows, you know, like <laughs> yeah. this audience. It's like it's really fucked up. Just this whole thing. This is where the grotesquerie of the whole thing just, yeah, you know, it's it's great. And then there's these questions afterwards, and the minister says, "Choice. He must he he ceases to be capable of moral choice. That's the problem." And they yeah. say, "We are concerned with." cutting down crime and he's he'll be your true christian and it's like no he's not a true christian because he's not choosing to do it and they say the point is that it works so here you yeah. have that strict kind of utilitarianism like right. autonomy dichotomy that i think certainly understandably makes people think that this is the exact point of the movie that and the fact right. that both kubrick and burris uh burgess burgess fuck uh, said it was um, yeah uh, i love yeah i love when he's like choice the boy has no real choice has he yeah. his insincerity was clearly to be seen right yeah but it works it's it's yeah the point it's, is that it works yeah and that's what you hang your hat on that's 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 what i thought the movie was about okay so then he goes home again dressed like a boy when he goes back to his home and this is another just hilarious scene. His parents yeah. are there, and they just have another son. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it is. It, there's a point I want to make about all this stuff at the end that that I think is <laughs> is is something that I I came to. Um, but yes, it is. He's like a great other son too. He's like. Yeah. Really, they've bonded with this like adult human male. You know, he's like completely. He's taking over. He's like, but my room, like you know, <laughs> he's, he's taking over his room. This whole scene reminded me. I don't know if you've seen the Wallace and Gromit like TV shorts. Um, I've seen some of them. Yeah, the penguin, the one with the penguin, where the penguin kind of comes into the house and Gromit, <laughs> like penguin, kind of takes Gromit's place, and Gromit comes back, and it's it's exactly like that. I mean, I don't know, maybe <laughs> maybe Clockwork Orange inspired that kind of dynamic, but it, that's what it made me think of is you know you have these well-meaning but kind of clueless parents, the the smarter son. And then, like, this new usurper. It really makes you wonder, like, where did they find this guy? Yeah. 
where did they find and he's really mean to alex and the yeah. parents just kick him out like they don't kick him out because they don't have the balls to do that but they just make it clear that he can't come home because they've paid joe has taken uh <laughs> and joe's like worse than alex there's no way you're happy that joe is treating alex like this like right, joe but is he's just not a- wrong you know, he's also not wrong. He's like, this guy's right. a monster. And you're like, oh, but wait, no, he's a fucking murderous. Right. I know. This is monster. where the, that conflict comes in. And like, yeah. this is something definitely Kubrick is doing where he makes it's not that he makes Alex all that sympathetic. He just makes all the other characters less sympathetic or more unsympathetic, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. And this Joe guy is like a total villain in that scene. <laughs> yeah. And then he also gives a little retributivist dig in there. He says, it's only right that you should suffer too proper. I don't yeah. think our English accents are very good here. <laughs> so then you have a bunch of scenes that are just mirrors of the first part of the movie where he goes out to the street and he runs into that homeless guy by coincidence and the homeless guy recognizes him. He actually gives the homeless guy money this time, but the homeless guy recognizes him, and then with his all dirty homeless gang, as he calls it, I forget the the he they beat they beat his ass. Um, <laughs> and right as they're finishing beating his ass, his two droog underlings turns out to be cops, and they come in and they torture him take him out to the woods and like drown him in water this is another great kubrick touch when he's in the water you hear it you hear what's going on like including the music and everything as if it's like you're dunked in the water you know catch that yeah yeah it's very cool and then and they kind of torture him and almost kill him and then he just staggers into a house and that happens to be the house home with the sign home where he did the first home invasion right yeah let's talk about this scene unless you have something to say about the other scenes yeah no i don't think i have much to say about those other scenes other than what you said which is that they mirror this and this time this time alex is the the victim yeah he's the defense he's the defenseless victim in this case there's there's a, a a little mini theme that I think emerges, which is that this is very much a um, uh, like youth hating old people. There's a, there's a there's mm-hmm. a dichotomy. Like old people are really just the enemy. Like from Alex's perspective, being old is just a bad in and of itself. Like it's a celebration of youth and a disdain for every person who's who's of any advanced age. Well, it's because I don't think the young people come off great either. In in my no, they hate they hate the old people. Right, they hate them. Yes, that's right. Uh, Right. So so now this uh, Mr. Alexander's in the wheelchair, right? Yeah, and he welcomes Alex (laughs) in, doesn't recognize him. Again, this is right. the, the this, the symmetry of this movie is amazing, both in the composition of the shots, but then also just the structure of the plot. I found it hilarious, by the way, when we first see the Mr. Alexander at home with the big muscle bound guy in the short shorts next to him. I'm like, wait, has 
Is the weightlifter, the gay weightlifter. Yeah, you get that's what it seems like because he certainly <laughs> but, is dr- dressed like that. Right. The wife who got raped, by the way, even though she wasn't murdered, she ended up dying, so she's not there. Right. Um, like probably die and and dying from just complications grief I guess. or suicide. I think it's maybe implicated. By the way, that um, actor who plays the gay weightlifter. <laughs> Do you Darth know Vader. this? Darth Vader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it. Too. Yeah, okay. yeah. The guy the guy in the Darth Vader suit, not James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not James Earl Jones. <laughs> I, one thing that I think is played more in the book, you get hints of it in the movie, but he, the Mr. Alexander, is really um, opposed as a writer to the new techniques of this new ministry. I mean, you get that he's opposed to it, but I came across this quote from the book, and I don't know if, I don't think this is in the movie. This was in my research after watching. This is a quote that he's writing, um, you know, when he's always on his typewriter, to attempt to impose upon man a creature capable of growth and capable of sweetness, to attempt to impose, I say, laws and conditions appropriate to mechanical creation. Against this, I raise my sword pen. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, and that is the meaning of A Clockwork Orange, right? The the title that's never really explained in the film, but it is... A, a machine with the skin of a human, right? That, right. That, <clears throat> but it's interesting, and this is, I guess, true in the book, too, that, like, against this, I raise my sword pen. Like, this guy is not supposed to come off <laughs> that great either. In spite of the fact, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, it's just so bombastic and ridiculous, you know? Right. So and, there is this moment when when he, uh, you know, Alex has recognized him yes. um, from the beginning, Mr. Alexander at one point, and this actually, you know, he tricked me, um, recognizes him and you think, oh shit, he knows that this was like, but no, he recognizes him as the victim of this Ludovico technique and is just delighted at the opportunity that he will have to expose, expose this inhumane technique to the world. So how, yeah, you, do you interpret it that way? Cause I, you know when you first see his expression and again he's being shot in this grotesque way but when you first see his really weird when you first see his expression it looks like he like my initial reading is it doesn't make it doesn't it's not consistent with what follows is he recognized him and then pushed it down so that it wouldn't be obvious that he recognized him and then you realize probably that's almost certainly that's not the case uh, because he is typing and sort of getting people to come over and he's very excited. And um, and also just the scene where he definitely does know who that is is so right. kind of shocking. But then right. one way of reading it is at some level he totally... I was going to say that. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say that because it is... it's. It's not like Kubrick to pull a, such a cheap trick on you um, where where like the, the gag that he recognizes him so clearly is then just turned into no, no, he just recognized him. I think that that this is I mean, maybe that's not a cheap trick anyway, but but it, it does seem to me that that there is a deeper sense in which he recognizes him that he has not yet. Yeah. Like himself consciously realized. So then 
Alex really fucks up. Like <laughs> this is this is not Alex like actually. If you were gonna nitpick about certain parts of the movie, but he's in the bath. They're taking care of him, and, and he starts singing, singing in the rain. Which, by the way, I, I have not read the book. Um, given that Malcolm McDowell uh, improvised it, improvised yeah. that. Uh, Couldn't I wonder how it would have been resolved yeah. without that? I mean, would it have been a different song or would it have been a, a phrasing of some sort? Well, so this is the thing that's a little strange about this whole ending that, again, I didn't fully remember. It's not totally clear that they did anything different than what they were going to do had they not had he not recognized who Alex was. Right. Their goal was to make him a martyr. And so it's possible that they were going to that that when he was calling those people, this is what they were going to do from the beginning. And it's going to be an an expose. They were going to demonstrate what suffering he would go through. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It would have just been with less revenge in his eyes. Yes. Right. And it's yeah. not even totally clear whether the other people even knew what they were doing. At first you think, oh, they're in on it, like in on the revenge. But but it's not totally clear that that's true. Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, at first I was thrown off. I was like, oh, so at some point in between when he called them and when they right. came, that's when he discovers. And so I thought, well, maybe then he just said, no, no, come just play along with it. But he's actually the rapist of my wife. Um but no, I think you're I think you're right because the way in which they ask him questions as journalists is straightforward like there's no hint that they are um you know holding this secret. What like why would they even take part in in a right. plan like that? Why right. not just put him up in the room? Yeah. yeah. And they were and they yeah, they ask him about the Beethoven and they um and again they're treating him like the people in the hospital did, which is yeah. ironic given that they're supposedly against that whole approach and yet they're still everybody's treating Alex like this mechanical object rather than a, Right. using him as a mere means as you would say. <laughs> I didn't think about this until you said um, that that if you're going to be nitpicky, do you think that at some level Alex wanted to be punished, and that that's why he started singing "Singing in the Rain"? <laughs> I had no, I hadn't you're thought right; of that. it's blatant. It's a really blatant. Even if "Singing in the Rain" popped into his head because of that memory, right? We've not seen him sing "Singing in the Rain" yeah. during. You know, if it would be one thing if he was always singing. It was only during that thing. Maybe it popped into his head because he was remembering the attack. But to not have the thought that singing it would would actually tip off this guy. Like maybe at some level he himself realizes that he hasn't properly been punished for his crime. It's not consistent with him being a true, true psychopath. But, but you know, this isn't reality. I, I mean, so it's unlike Alex either way. Right. Like, yeah. it's unlike Alex to make a dumb mistake like that. Like, he's usually savvier than that. You could argue that maybe he was just so, like, he'd just been, like, had his head dunked in water and beaten with a stick. And so maybe he just slipped up. 
It's also unlike Alex, I think, at any point in the movie to really feel any remorse um, and to even at any level, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Here's here's a, the a thought that I just had that might be an interesting take on this that I don't think I endorse, but I'll toss it out there anyway. Yeah. The Ludovico technique actually worked to make him develop some sort of conscience, and that. His singing, singing in the rain, is a reflection of him sort of wanting to get caught. We only get sort of a little hint before he then commits suicide or attempts attempts to kill himself, um, and then has the therapy undone. Yeah. We only got a little smidgen of the fact that hey, maybe this Ludovico technique actually worked to give him a sense of right and wrong, and maybe yeah. he's feeling guilty about uh, you know being in this guy's house, but we'll never really know because they stopped it. They stopped it. Yeah. So. It- one piece of evidence for your that view, which I, which I think is really interesting, is that he actually gives the homeless guy money. Yeah, that's right. So there's another piece where he shows kind of, you know, he didn't have to give the homeless guy money. He could have just right. told him, I don't have anything and moved along. But right. again, you don't know if he's just doing it to get him out of his face because he's so upset about what his parents did or... But it would be an interesting take that like the very opposite of the view that this is some, you know, some cry out to like the, the this is not how morality ought to work. That in fact, he had internalized it because in fact, we are clockwork oranges. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, this. I had thought of this for the future. Like, what happens if this had gone on for the future? We have to talk about, obviously, the fact that there was this missing chapter of yeah. this book, but we'll talk about that towards the end. Anyway, let's wrap this up. They put him up in the room, play Beethoven's Ninth, lock the door, and he commits suicide, which was kind of, or he tries to commit suicide, which seems right. like it was their plan. And they fucked up because he lived. And so then he goes to the hospital. The Great mint- shot, by the way, of him, the uh, first person shot of him yes. falling. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's actually, it was really fucking distressing. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. That's Kubrick. Like, he knows what he's, like, he, he is a total master. Like, this, yeah. And also, this movie- just great shot of those symmetric speakers pointed up at the ceiling with that cool, another cool hi fi system. And camera pans up to the, to the other floor. And, and you see Alex just fucking going crazy. I mean, setting aside 2001, which is its own category of visual awesomeness. Yeah. Is this his most? This is, seems like the most well-directed Kubrick movie, like or the most Kubricky Kubrick movie in terms of his. I mean, I don't know. Maybe The Shining has some of this, but uh, just so virtuosic on a scene-to-scene, shot-to-shot basis. It's that. So I think that in terms of his visual uh, design and the music yeah uh, there there is nothing like those two movies i i don't know that they're the you know that that i would put a clockwork orange <sighs> it's it's not I mean, necessarily my favorite i like i yeah. like probably doctor strange love better and i like yeah. um you know i love the what the killing is that what it is yeah that's great the killers or the killers? the killing the killing yeah there's a 
So then the the power dynamic shift at the end where Alex knows he has all the and again he, he's still being childlike but he's back to being in control childlike in that scene with the minister he's opening his mouth like a baby bird to get fed mm-hmm. by the minister and I mean this is just again like unbelievable performance by Malcolm McDowell exactly because it's not mockery you would think yeah. what he's doing is mocking he's not he is falling into this role as if this were his yeah, yeah. and uh, he's just taking advantage of the fact that oh i care, i have the cards now and i'm mm-hmm. gonna make this guy grovel a bit he needs me and i'm gonna make him grovel you you get you clearly find out from the dialogue that they have undone the ludovico technique yeah. or at least tried to and then because they, it was by the way a pr disaster and we see this yes. montage of newspaper headlines right. you know old style newspaper headlines exactly. about what yeah <laughs> And then they bring in these speakers to show that it it is over, and they play Beethoven's Ninth, and there's this last shot of it's a great. I mean, of him just getting ridden by this naked woman with, and this was something I recognized for the first time. So the the people surrounding him who are politely applauding in his <laughs> fantasy of just having sex with this woman, they're dressed up like it's the Ascot uh, opening race in My Fair Lady. Like they're just it's uh. just those people. So it's like this British, yeah. Like and again, it's like his fantasies are in, all bound up in movies, and and then the final last line: "I was cured, all right." Do you know, I just thought of this now, given given what we were just talking about. In my memory, his final scene, his final fantasy is rape. And it's not at all. Yeah. He is, he is having, he's just having sex. Yeah, he's just having sex with the woman. So maybe he is cured. <laughs> he's not fantasizing about violence. Is there no more, there's no other montage of any kind of violence or anything? I mean, that's the scene I I remember. Yeah, I feel like he is, oh yeah, I feel like there is something. I think there is. Okay, that's that's the long summary, but I, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of the thematic philosophical stuff. Yeah, and and the summary gave us a chance to talk about a lot of the details, but but take a step back. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I so I agree with you that it is a bit of a red herring that this is all about free will and whether or not you know it is humane to to do this. I mean, it's clearly part of it is that, but the bulk of the movie is more about you know. I don't know. It's just about this character and his love for violence. But here's here's what I can't shake. This is Kubrick's one and only comedy. Doctor Strangelove. Oh yeah, much- Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but my main point being, this is actually a comedy. Oh, okay. Like you're right. It's not considered a comedy. <laughs> Right. No, not at all. Yeah. It's a mon- it's considered a monstrous movie with this deep philosophical implication. I say watch it as a comedy and it's hilarious. Yes. 
absolutely. I mean, like the and, and like kind of obviously comic in I mean, many scenes, especially after the yeah. Ask people though what what they remember, and I guarantee you that most people who have seen the movie a long time ago will not repeat to you the comedic elements. No, like, and I think that that is. <laughs> I think Kubrick pulled a fast one. He's like, I'm going to make a comedy that has actually like really fucked up violence in it. But this is just going to be a comedy. It's actually lighthearted in in this way that is jarring because of the juxtaposition of not lighthearted stuff. But I think, again, if if we think about this from Alex's perspective, it's a comedy in a classical sense, traditional sense, where it has a happy ending from his point of view. And there's a lot of people who looked like they were going to get the the upper hand, and they don't in the end. They all get punished. They all get humiliated. They all get, um, uh, like, you get the sense that the Andersons have been, or the uh, Mr. Anderson and his crew have been put away somewhere. You don't know exactly what, but they've been put away somewhere so that they can never harm Alex. From Alex's perspective... He has taken nothing seriously. He's barely right. even dreadful of consequences. And his his uh, view of these people in the world are that they're pretty much idiots and caricatures. And that's how it's filmed. And the, the, surpri- you know, the comedic elements of the film become far less surprising if you understand it as all sort of the uh, hilarity from Alex's perspective, like I'm going to, you know, like the, the delight with which he engages in the violence makes it seem like this is, you know, if a psychopath wrote a comedy about his life, this might be what it looks like. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause why would you, yeah. Cause why would you be jarred and disturbed? He doesn't feel that. So like, let me include the rape scene. Yes. (laughs) Cause I was dancing. That's kind of funny. I was singing and dancing. (laughs) No, that's right. Like, I, I, I totally think that's true. And it's interesting to sort of try to delve into why Kubrick decided to present it that way when I don't think that you would necessarily take that from the book. Let me let me talk. Uh, I yeah. want to get back to that because I think it's relevant to this. So so the the general sort of view of this movie is that this is a defense of free will and a reaction against the rehabilitation techniques that were um, gaining prominence at that time in the middle of the last century, and that the purpose of the film is to show us that our that our defense of human autonomy is so strong, our commitment to human autonomy is so strong that we re- we're going to recoil at the restriction of Alex, uh, Alex's free will, his, his autonomy, even for somebody that's so violent and such an obvious psychopath who causes so much harm and so dangerous, right? Yeah. That's, I think, the sort of standard interpretation of it. And I think we've probably even said this before in the podcast that, like, yeah. you find yourself rooting for Alex or at least feeling sorry for him even though he's done the most vicious things and it's been thrown in your face that how vicious he's been but that's how attached we are to free will yeah um so i need to give some credit here on the rewatch that didn't seem right to me but i didn't exactly know why and then i read this article about it by 
Greg Sorzo from a uh, website called Culture on the Offensive. And he made, I think, what is a fairly obvious point that people don't seem to get, uh, which is Alex's free will is intact the entire movie, right? He is, uh, even though he's given this technique... The technique doesn't change his desires. It doesn't change his values, unless what you're saying is right, sort of at the end of the knit. It doesn't change his second order desires. It doesn't change anything. All it does is give him a different choice when he wants to rape or assault somebody. Like, do you want to do this or do you want to feel sick? And he will choose. Um, probably because the sickness is so great he'll probably choose but that's just a kind of coercion that is in any punishment system right like if yeah, he's in prison is, I mean, it's this is, worse this is hand it's handcuffs this right. is this is just these are fancy handcuffs or or it's like somebody following him around and beating his ass whenever he wants to commit a crime right so then you say but we still recoil again like we still think that they're doing something immoral to him And so then he makes this point that the thing that's immoral and the thing that we recoil against has nothing to do with the restriction of his autonomy. It's that he, 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 it's the same thing that we were recoiling against when Alex was the, the perpetrator rather than the victim. It's the fact that he's being beaten and tortured when he's defenseless. Right. And, and this, this is a form of constant punishment for him. Yes, yeah. that like he literally can't defend himself, and he happens to come across the very people who would want to torture him in uh, because of what he's done to them, and so like of course we're going to recoil to that, not because his freedom has been restricted, but because here's a defenseless person getting tortured. So then also the the person said, look, imagine that he had been given a more sophisticated aversion therapy it wouldn't have to be that much more sophisticated number one it allowed him to defend himself when he was being attacked it only made that sickness come into play when he was uh, unprovoked when he was attacking somebody unprovoked and number two it didn't trigger when he listened to beethoven right right like right. would we have that same kind of recoil or would we have that same like this is immoral I I don't know. Like I don't I don't think necessarily uh, I, yeah. we would, right? Like it's he still gets to do everything except commit horrible crimes. And so like he gets to make tons of other moral choices. He gets to do anything except do the thing that, you know, that that he was going to be put in prison for a long time to prevent him from doing. Anyway. So so it's like house arrest, kind of. It's like having an ankle. It's, no, exactly. Yeah. It's an ankle bracelet for the mind. So, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I actually don't think I ever. Oh, that's hard to remember, right? I don't think I ever felt as if this was a horrible thing to do to somebody. I mean, aside from like the unintended, like what you say, like that that the removal of autonomy just. Even though I took it as that, I took it as they were telling me in the film, look how horrible the removal of autonomy is. It never, I I don't know, it never struck me as that, like something to be outraged about. And I think that the reason is uh, 
because of what you just said and what what was this guy says yeah scorzo uh, yeah <clears throat> yeah i'll put a link to that um it's exactly right right i mean here's here's where i think maybe and i haven't read the article maybe the worst of it is to be able to be punished for your thoughts is a different kind of punishment and that might be what people are responding to so that at the at merely even fantasizing or intending without actually acting you are you are sick maybe that maybe people feel like that's you're now inside my head do we ever see him get sick f- just from fantasizing um i don't think no, so no no but but presumably the images of violence yeah in the room. um and i i take it that what you know he's i don't know you know he's formulating the intention so it's not like it's not like uh, uh reward punishment therapy where if he does punch somebody he gets like a shock it's actually preventing him from so i take it that as he's formulating his intention to attack somebody that's when he starts getting sick because he never can actually behave in that way. Yeah, I mean, we don't get many details about this. No. But, um, but it's interesting that they didn't have a mirror scene of him putting on the headphones and trying to... Or I guess he couldn't listen to Beethoven. But, yeah. But tr- maybe the fact that, it, you know, Beethoven, that those were the things that sent him into the fantasies in the first place, and he can't yeah. listen to that, so maybe he, he can't get the fantasies that way. But even that is like a byproduct of the technique, and you could certainly imagine a technique that allowed you to have the fantasies, it just didn't allow you to have... I mean, it's conceivable, I don't know. I don't know if yeah, any of this I, is and, empirically plausible in any way, but... Yeah, and and... It, it may very it may very well be that that's not even what what the technique as described is intended to come across. But like I'm trying to get at what people might think. They might they might okay. think rightly or wrongly that this is more intrusive in that it is it is um, punishing him for not acting. Yeah. Right. It's almost pre crime, but it's right. like right 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 before, <laughs> not like. <laughs> Right. Not like but in the yeah. same way that if, you know, you put a tail on him or somebody or if you put an ankle bracelet or, you know, like or like with the child molesters, if you put like something on their dicks. But I guess people have a problem with that, too. But but that's like it's it's I think that's the actual difference. Like if you have somebody following you around, it's they're going to have to see you actually start doing something. It's going to be, it's not going to be that the, the, the but he does the start doing it. Like, remember he reaches for the woman. Yeah. He reaches he reach, for, yeah. He, yeah. But I took that as being like, he's trying to fight against the sickness that's already creeping in at his thoughts. Like he's like struggling against it. Um, Heroically. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to touch that. But I agree. Either way, I agree that it's that it's not really a case where he doesn't have autonomy. He has at least not autonomy in in the way that I think upon reflection most people would consider being autonomous. He still he is constrained in the way that prison constrains you. In, in less um, of a way that cri- prison In less of a way than prison constrains you. Yeah. Because yeah. his it he is, has way more f- autonomy than he would have if he was in prison like way more there's just very specific things that he that he can't do or maybe think about but uh, 
but it's the defenseless part that I think is is yeah. driving a lot of it. You're right. So like the fact that anybody, if I saw him walking down the street, I could place in Beethoven and put him in a crippling yeah <laughs> like state yeah. of like near suicidality. Uh, or actual so yeah. then the the article and this is a long article and <laughs> i i don't even know if i read the whole thing carefully especially uh this part but he's like okay so then what is the movie about if it's not about what everybody thinks it's about and what he was saying is that you have to think of this movie as a comment on counterculture you know really look at that society and look at what the movie is saying about the society, um, the kind of decadence, the kind of erotic art about youth in the late 60s and the way they had sort of taken control of certain things or there was a fear that they had taken control and that they had all the power. And uh, so, so that really this is much more of a period piece in that sense than where you know you have sexual liberation and you have you know free love and hippies and all of that is has a kind of element in the movie like it's already been sort of entrenched and uh internalized by the society all this stuff and this right. is the result of it is, is so i'm actually gonna yeah. i pulled up that article i'm gonna quote yeah. from it um uh, the main visual storytelling technique of A Clockwork Orange is to present its narrative in the context of a garish, brightly colored post-60s dystopia. Um, characters wear interesting and exaggerated variations of op art, psychedelic, and hippie fashions. This is not a typical Orwellian dystopia that consists of a helpless population terrorized by some totalitarian government. This is a society that manifests a degree of social freedom that realizes much of what 60s counterculture wanted to see in mainstream society. Um, so recreational drug use and and uh very um lax standards about sex um is it is it's just exaggerating so it's almost like a reductio is, is this what you want yeah right yeah. and that's a, that's a really interesting way to view this as a kind of comment on the society you know that the, the movie was actually made in which is 10 yeah. years after, as, as the article points out, Burgess definitely wasn't commenting on that because it was he wrote it in the early 60s before that kind of hippie counterculture had existed. And Kubrick is, is if anything, he's known for taking works of art and making them very much his own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like and, he does not, he, like he didn't give a fuck about like whether or not the original author's cared for his interpretation no certainly not in the case of the shining but uh, <laughs> but uh but in this case he he stuck more much more closely to the plot and the script like and, and the dialogue but just because i think it's so fucking good it's so it's interesting that he is he, he might be uh like you know they, they they describe him as essentially carrying around the the book yeah. and using it as 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 rather than a script just sort of like okay in this scene we want to recreate this scene. so it's interesting that he might be able to tell a slightly different story with emphasis and visual storytelling that is so close to the book that one has to really think about what what kubrick is saying yeah right by his with his technique with his technique exactly and like the ways in which he's he's 
being faithful versus the ways in which he is departing from the book. Um, just one last thing about the philosophy, and then we should talk about the sort of big departure from the book. Um, the, the theme of approaches to punishment and the philosophy of punishment that is, if you wanted to critique the movie for being sophomoric, could you do it not in terms of presenting its thoughts on freedom and free will and autonomy, but in its a kind of caricature of the retributive approach versus the utilitarian approach? The retributive approach, you have all these people saying, eye for an eye, you should get what you deserve, you know. And then you have the utilitarian approach modeled by these rehabilita- rehabilitation technique people who just want to do the cheapest, most effective way of, of reducing suffering and reducing violence in the community. I, I mean, it's not necessarily superficial or simplistic, but it really is kind of the extreme... Yeah. somewhat caricatured, whether it's intentional or not, somewhat caricatured versions of those philosophical positions on punishment. I mean, I think that that's, it's not, it's not wrong that this film tackles that. And, uh, and I think maybe, you know, we're, we're a little bit jaded because, you know, we've spent yes. 20 years talking about this stuff and it might seem simplistic to us, but not to other people. And I think that that's, hence the emphasis in, you know, in the symmetrical structure that you were describing the middle point is that argument yeah right it is very much that we're not concerned with motives no he's insincere that's not true goodness that is at least one level at which this the the movie is still trying to to um you know hold on to that theme in in the book and i i think that it but that's a different that's different than the free will thing. Like the It's like, different. It's no, no, it is different. It's it's yeah, you're right. It's it's um but it is utilitarian in the response that who gives a shit about intentions? All we want is a cessation of behavior yeah, and this is effective. This works. The point is that it works, you know. Yeah, We're not concerned is, with motive. Yeah, right. Um and and a deontologist really wants you know, the extreme deontologist wants it to all be Suffering. a product of reason, but but even like a character, a virtue theorist would at least want it to be a reflection of the true self and Alex's true well, self. No, but th- his- that's still different, right? Like the retributivist here wants Alex to suffer for the crimes that he did. Yeah, you're not right. I'm, that he I'm, wants. To, I'm rolling like, deontology yeah. into into yeah. retributivism, um, which is certainly consistent with it. But yeah. yeah, it is it is this desire for punishment. Um, to, and I, I have used examples like this when I'm trying to like teach in seminars where I say, you know, imagine there's a a child molester and, you know, we've developed this new pill that just completely removes all desire to ever touch another kid again. Um, but he's, you know, victimized whatever 30 kids, um, and is in prison for 20 years. Would you give him the pill and just let him go? Right. Just to boil down that intuition. Do you want Alex to suffer? Yeah. Um, and and uh, the child molester is a good a way of t- 
teasing those two things apart because nobody says in the case of the child molester, no, I want him to choose not to want to molest <laughs> right. kids. I like I want that to be free choice, right? Yeah. The, it, the, the resistance to that has nothing to do with like you're restricting their free will because nobody gives a shit about like restricting the free will of a child molester to molest children. It's I want them to suffer for having molested children. That's like, right. That's yeah. right. This movie isn't, you know, it. what makes me think at least it's not a very good presentation of this sort of classic debate is that Alex suffers. Not only does he spend time in prison, um, but he is then, sh- the technique itself is, is making suffering. But I guess, you know, that's the point of them saying, well, there's your retribution. Right. right when he's no when right he's and too. and and again they they will say like a good utilitarian this is much less suffering than he would experience in prison um yeah. and it's also much less expensive um if we can do this and so all of a sudden people are only spending like a month in prison uh rather than right 15 years or 25 years and, and like yeah the movie then doesn't really take a st- stand on on the debate it just says like ironically turns out this is even worse suffering than you know than than anticipated the technique itself is like driving him mad into suicide like so it wasn't it wasn't a utilitarian model well of, uh, right uh i mean although, well sorry uh, yeah. and there's multiple ironies because th- like it also gives almost perfect retribution to every one of his victims, right? It gives uh, mm-hmm. retribution. Yeah, like exactly. the, the, the homeless person got beaten up, no, exactly. and like exactly. by a like, and now he, he, the homeless person and his gang get to beat him up, right? And yeah. the woman gets raped and tortured and and driven to suicide, and so he then also gets tortured and driven to suicide and it's like it's it's literally like retribution as you draw it up in the, the hammurabi hammurabi like style <laughs> yeah eye for an yeah, eye yeah uh it is it is a it is all comeuppance it's nothing but comeuppance and and justice in in the truest sense of retribution where it's like for you know like for like kind for kind but that's why i think it's too sloppy a presentation of those two two views to really be taken seriously as yeah. a philosophical argument I agree. Um, and so i do think that the more in- the definitely the more interesting thing once you get past that surface level you know it's it's you know there's something there about uh, about i don't even know i you know part yeah. of me thinks there's not even something that's that deep a commentary it's rather a um Kubrick taking us through a journey where we are made to be to have oddly ambivalent feelings about violence, like a yeah. comment on on the, you know, I am going to make you weirdly like my protagonist, even though there's no doubt in your mind that he's evil. Um, yeah, and and you know, Kubrick was definitely using shock tactics, especially at the time. Um, and I don't think the reason was to make any. Uh, I don't. I'm not. At least I'm not convinced that it was to make anything deeper than a claim about what an artist can take you through. As a, it's more about what you experience through the viewing of this movie, really. Um, no, that's right. And 
the way in which he's he's putting us on this roller coaster of how do I think about this is through the depiction of the other characters in the world and the sort of the stylized performances and the like it's a dark world too it's like a weird you know it's a dark weird fucking world like it's like so just everybody is just looks like you're viewing them through some altered lens and their performances like that and their uh like the just the parents like the parents are 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 just totally strange and the and then there's the the droogs and dim he's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah like with his odd echolalia like just repeating yeah. everything the other guy's saying yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it's it's weird you know this is this is what people have said uh, about you know many sort of of the modern dramas but certainly the sopranos and maybe breaking bad is that you are but david chase was explicit about this he wanted us to at some point he was frustrated that everybody was unwilling to condemn tony right he was testing us like harder and harder by making tony do some pretty fucked up shit and still realizing that the audience was unwilling to turn on tony and i think he presented him as a sympathetic character in the beginning or at least as a mixed character and was somewhat shocked by the by the fact that the audience (laughs) seemed to, to respond so positively to him and and so, I feel like that's what Kubrick is doing with us. I think it's but different not, yeah. because I'm never so with Tony Soprano and with to a lesser extent uh Walter White and Breaking Bad. Definitely yeah. lesser extent Walter White, but you actually really like them throughout and I never liked Alex in the way that I liked Tony Soprano like I never felt he was charismatic and kind of funny well there's no yeah there's no depth to his his character yeah I mean part of that is is a movie not a tv but part of it is yeah the acts of violence are more unforgivable from the very beginning like just yeah you can't get on his side after the i i mean honestly for me it was like the beating the homeless guy never mind the the gang rape of the the woman and the home invasion like just like taking that homeless guy and kicking the shit out stomping him for no reason like you just can't get on the, on his side uh yeah. even if you're just kind of admiring his you you kind of admire certain aspects of him but tony soprano you got kind of attached no, to yeah, yeah yeah he's he's a great he's a just a great yeah yeah no i agree and and i agree that there is some 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 way in which if that's if that's what kubrick wanted he wouldn't have opened with such cold violence yeah i mean um, it's unrelenting at the beginning of this movie it's just yeah like, yeah um he's you know he is a a psychopath you know there's the way psychiatrists diagnose psychopathy is they give him a score on this on this in-depth interview, but you could get a score of up to 40. And he's like a a true 40, like what they would call it, like yeah. the most zero, zero compunction, zero remorse, zero ability to to take the perspective of others or feel their pain um, from the get-go. And this is why I think, why would Kubrick do this? And why would he have Malcolm McDowell give such an electric performance it is that he is making us feel something. He is yeah. making us almost feel like, hey, the viol- like I can make, surprise, I can make you consume 
horrific moral acts just because I have a guy wearing cool false eyelashes and doing a little dance. Yeah. Right. Vidi well. <laughs> Vidi like it well. Might, it might as well us. have been him who said that, right? Like, yeah. Vidi well to us. Yeah. And and so much of the backlash, you know, it's not like I don't want to talk about what, you know, whether it's, you know, it's it's morally horrendous to do this as an artist and, you know, whether this is misogynistic because of all the rape scenes. Certainly, I agree that all of the acts that are represented in the film are just true evil, right? There's no, I don't think Kubrick is pulling any punches by saying like, by presenting these in a positive light. He wants them to be purely condemnatory acts. Like these are these are wrong things, um, but he's he's fucking with your moral sensibilities yeah. by presenting them in such an aesthetically pleasing uh, fashion. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. no. I mean, yeah. and, I, and 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 I like like what you said before. It's not totally clear why he's doing it. It doesn't have to be clear why he's doing exactly. it. You wouldn't want it to be that he has some sort of agenda that he wants to press about something. Like, he's doing it because he's Kubrick and because it's coming out of him, you know? Like, yeah. And, right. No, exactly. Kubrick yeah. is an artist. Let's talk about the the last chapter of the book. So, the book has a last chapter in the British version, and now I think in the American version, but originally not in the American version. Um, the second to last chapter is sort of what you see in the last scene of the movie, I Was Cured All Right, and then uh, two years pass, and he actually just becomes a good person spontaneously. Right. Which sounds horrible. It sounds like it, sounds like it ruined am i am i right and kubrick even even apparently even after he found out that that's what how the book ended um, right. he was apparently like, well, well it's not like i wouldn't have done that anyway <laughs> and and and, I, and apparently he didn't know that that yeah. was the last chapter because he uh he had the american version but um, um and am i right am i recalling right that that the last chapter was added at the at the request of the publisher no it was the opposite. No, the American thought, publisher refused to publish the last chapter. He thought. Oh, it, but I thought the original chapter was added as. Uh, but I could, uh, yeah, I could have been misreading that. So the reason um, it's not in the American version is because the Amer. I know this for sure. The, the American publisher just said, "No, this is terrible ending. You're ruining your whole book, and I'm not doing <laughs> it." Uh, yeah, but but that maybe but the, that can maybe, stand. Yeah. yeah, but. I thought that 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 he had included that horrible ending chapter because originally the British. I, I don't think so. You look at interviews with him, and he's like, "I this is what I wanted." Like this, it does this. Is, yeah, know. I think you're right. I think yeah. you're right. I think I miss. I just misread something. <laughs> it's it's my just yeah. Can you I mean, imagine just undo like, it's everything? Wor- it's worse in the movie. It would be worse in the movie. Like you have that scene, and then it's like two years later, and he's like, yeah, you know, just. He's so ridiculous. The, yeah, the, the, never has a never has a popular press publisher made a better decision than those Americans who said, "Like, wait, it's like, like the opposite of a Hollywood ending." It's like, no, exactly. you're not fucking up this book. You have a great book here, and you're not fucking it up. Yeah, and I know that uh, Burgess has had second thoughts about the way his interpretation, the way the book that he interpreted the book, even originally i think he did write it with that kind of this is a champion of freedom in mind 
Yeah. Um, certainly that's how like every interview he presented it. But um, I think he had some second thoughts about it towards the end. I mean, I can see somebody like, I mean, just even Most me, people, right? So yeah. suppose that I had the chops to write a novel and I decided that I was going to write a novel about this evil person and I was going to describe these horrific things. I might be tempted to solidify the point like or like un- undo it for the reader or, or emphasize if what I'm trying to emphasize is good that like thinking that I needed to reemphasize it at the end as a sandwich, you know, like a, yeah. a and and it takes a it takes guts to allow the reader themselves to reach that conclusion yeah that this is still undoubtedly an evil person right and and actually like it makes more sense that it's a defense of free will with that last chapter that's when it makes some sense it's like yeah you don't like he he can come to this on his own yeah you don't need to change him and it's better when he comes to it on his own but like you 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 certainly in the movie and i don't know about the book you certainly don't get the sense that he's ever going to couple years down the line without this technique just become a better person once he gets a little older now maybe right. burgess's point was actually there's no reason not to think that kids like when you're because remember he was 15 if you're a 15 year old little freaking psycho you can become like a decent person once you have a job and some responsibility and so maybe that was the idea like you know it's amazing how how the same same tale same structure same yeah. details same scenes can become a very very different story like uh, that yeah yeah and omitting that final chapter turns it into not only a bleaker portrait of of perhaps you know the capacity to to become good um but also into a condemnation of of if if that interpretation is right a condemnation of the the excesses of of culture at the time yeah oh and 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 a rehabilitation right yeah um uh and that's you know it's rare that uh, obviously i have not read the book so i don't know how good it is compared to the the film but kubrick is the rare director who can make films that are better than the original books i think the book is really good i feel like i had it at one point i think eddie namias gave me the book possibly um i think he did and like he this was when we were battling i was anti-free will he was pro free will (laughs) he gave me the book with the final chapter and like um and i i i either read the whole thing or i read a lot of it and it's a it's it's amazing that whole voice that alex voice is in the (laughs) book so clearly and it's kind of brilliant um the way that he does that so I will say, like, just as a as just Close. as the little like uh, pieces that we didn't get to talk about, just really quick comments. The the music, I love Beethoven's Ninth. It's one of my favorite yeah. pieces of music, and I know it's low hanging fruit to say that, like, but it's it it's worth its reputation. It deserves its reputation. I think it's beautiful. And at the point where I was watching them uh, playing the Ninth uh, with you know scenes of concentration camps or whatever. I I turned to my friend and I was like, it's a sin to like put Beethoven's Ninth next to these images. And right after that, (laughs) uh, he screams out, Alex screams out, it's a sin. (laughs) He's like so outraged. Um, 
Well, uh, and then I imagine, like, I know Singing in the Rain is, like, your favorite movie. And uh, so it probably ruined that, that for you, too. Is that a movie? Is, is, is that a thing? Um, <laughs> uh, but, but again, just, like, master of his craft in, in the way that he used music. The, the synthesizers of the theme sounds so great. And then he, he then at the second half of the movie turns the ninth into a synthesizer piece. Like it goes, it's just, it's amazing. Everything is distorted. Like visually, uh, the audio, like everything has this kind of distorted craziness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. All right. All right. Jesus. Uh, (laughs) That's it for us next time let's do another movie sooner than like a year from now oh yeah and sorry yoel you got your own podcast we didn't include you yeah fuck you yoel <laughs> yoel talks shit about me in his most recent episode so i'm gonna say it here i want to punch you on the back of the head <laughs> uh, all right uh join us next time on very bad wizards cue the music